Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. One of the greatest action movies of all time is also one of the most beautiful, Mad Max Fury Road. It was on the top 10 lists of its year, 2015, and more than a few best of the decade lists. But making the movie was no walk in the park. A New Oral History by Kyle Buchanan is full of well-researched and very entertaining detail about the movie's sometimes insane production process which involved stops and starts dating back to the 1990s. Buchanan is a pop culture reporter at the New York Times, writing its projectionist column and interviewing a daunting array of Hollywood talent. The new book is called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road, and it draws on over 130 new interviews, including stars Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy, director George Miller, and a fascinating and wide-ranging selection of other cast and crew. It's a multi-layered look at making movies in a changing Hollywood, with all its delays and demands, and, of course, all the challenges of shooting an apocalyptic action film in the desert. I spoke with Buchanan a few weeks ago about the book, which is available now and is published by William Morrow. My guest today is Kyle Buchanan, author of Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which is the book-length expansion of an oral history article he wrote for the New York Times about none other than Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm very happy to have you here, Kyle. Uh, Welcome. I'm happy to be here. So this is obviously a movie that must be close to your heart if uh, you were, you know, willing to talk about it for for this much with, uh, you know, over, what is it, over 160 new interviews you did did for this. Can you just talk a bit about the genesis of both the article and, and the book? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the book is based on an an incredibly expanded from an oral history that I ran tied to Fury Road's fifth anniversary in the New York Times, which was in um, May 2020. And, you know, as you might recall, in uh, May 2020, and, you know, in in most of uh, the spring and summer of 2020, there simply were not new movies coming out. And my job for the Times is to write about new movies. So I thought to myself, okay, in addition to all of our other very acute pandemic-related concerns, what am I actually going to write about at work? And I remember that it was about to be the fifth anniversary of Fury Road, which was, you know, not only a movie that I love, not only, you know, the rare action film to sort of bear the brand of a real auteur and resonate not just at the box office, but with the Oscars. And I'd heard the craziest stories about the making of it over the years, things that those people didn't say who were involved with the movie when the film was coming out, but that with five years perspective, they might feel somewhat more inclined to spill about. And so I just thought, okay, if I can get Charlize, who I thought I could get because I had recently interviewed her, then maybe everybody else would be willing. This was also the phase of the pandemic where some of Hollywood's busiest people had nothing to do because their very packed schedules fell apart and they were just sitting at home, you know, looking for something. So yeah, Charlize signed on and in short order, so did, you know, basically the main cast and, and George Miller and a couple other key collaborators. And I interviewed them for this oral history that ran in the Times that was, I think, about 4,500 words. And it's wild now for me to go back to it, having, you know, so expanded on that to see, you know, it was a, it was a fun piece and it was a really big hit for us, but it really did just scratch the surface of the story. I think that when it comes to Fury Road, the movie, and also Fury Road, the production, 
you can tell that there is more to it than you can take in and sort of one viewing or reading or mm. even sort of, you know, one thought. One of the things that's so great about that movie is some things that pass in the blink of an eye suggest that there's a whole world of story put into that moment or character or idea. And then just as, you know, you get that sense on the screen, you absolutely do off the screen. I mean, just to watch that movie, my jaw literally was dropped the first time because I thought, how did they pull this off? Not just the physical making of it, but getting it through, you know, a studio process. So I was excited to tease out those stories too. You know, it's exactly what you said. It's kind of crazy that you would think after having interviewed so many people for this and written about it for, you know, a huge chunk of the last two years that I might get tired of it, but I just rewatched it two or three weeks ago and it still just rips, you know, it still fucking (laughs) works because the movie is so overwhelming and so incredibly well made that you can't help but get drawn back into it. Yeah. Rewatching it myself, just in preparation, I guess what I love about it is how it commits to excess, basically, if that that makes sense. Oh, very much. There's no self-consciousness about it. You know, you know, that's something I can't really stand in like, you know, whether it's a superhero movie or an action movie of another sort that, you know, something really dramatic will happen and then they'll just, they'll take the air out of it right away. And I'm like, why did you do that? You know, but this is just 100% full speed ahead. Uh, is, is that part of its its appeal a little bit for you? Don't you think? I mean, especially in yeah. the action genre, mm-hmm. like, listen, I love the same sort of movies that you love, Nicholas, but I, and I, I think you would probably agree the same. Like, listen, if, if you can make a really great studio blockbuster, then I'll be all in on that too. The problem is, and the thing that I think Fury Road exposed for me when I first watched it, is that we just weren't getting those. We were getting things that were so mid and we were pretending that we loved them because there was no alternative. So when you see something like Fury Road that's just so gonzo, there's no other word for it. I mean, what else, what other major studio tentpole films could you even apply an adjective like Gonzo to? And it's really bracing when you see that because it just creates this feeling that anything could happen. And I think, you know, a lot of action movies don't have that feeling. A lot of action movies feel weightless because of their CGI, but also weightless because of the sort of, you know, conventional compromises that you have to make when you're operating at that level as a filmmaker uh, and in that genre. And, you know, your movie is going to be responsible for making the studio a billion dollars. So there's so many people who care mostly about that and not about pushing any sort of envelope. Yeah. And there's no envelope that wasn't completely torn to shreds by Fury Road. And here might be a good time just to talk about what seems like the calm at the center of, of the hurricane of, of the film, which is George Miller. I mean, it's great to know that he is also or was also a doctor, because just to keep those two ideas in, in your head, that somehow the man who made this movie is, was also like an ER physician, it just makes complete sense. So I wonder if you could just talk a bit about, you know, the sense you got of him. There's not like the kind of swaggering and sort of feel you get sometimes when people feel like they have to hype up what they've done. Uh, He is, and he's extremely thoughtful, but not necessarily given to self-analysis, or at least not destroyed by it in the way that, or paralyzed (laughs) by it in the way that some of us might be. And maybe that's a really winning combination to be so thoughtful and yet so unconcerned with, you know, sort of waylaying yourself 
And I think that it's a funny thing, given how eclectic his career, his resume is. People will say, how could the guy who made Happy Feet, you know, these animated movies about penguins, (laughs) make something like Fury Road? And I honestly do think that if you met him, you would think he is the guy who made Happy Feet. That's what he exudes, Mm. that sort of jolly grandfather energy. The idea that he made Fury Road and has been making Mad Max films for most of his life is the harder sell. You look at someone like Michael Bay, you're like, yes, that's exactly the person that I pictured (laughs) making these movies. And George Miller, you know, who's, you know, not all that tall and looks kind of like Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. It's just a harder sell. Mm. But it's, it's one of those things where it makes this whole sort of story a little bit more delicious and and fascinating to me because, you know, maybe because of that unlikeliness, he is constantly underestimated his entire career. You know, from the very first time he made Mad Max, the first Mad Max film, the crew basically, almost all of them uh, had no faith. Some of them wanted to mutiny against him. He practically got ejected from his own movie. Mm. And that's a somewhat common pattern on his films. You know, I think part of it is that he tends to have a vision that is a little bit more out there. And the people that he works with, the maybe more conventional money people, or, or even conventional creative people, or even some of the actors, don't quite see what he sees until he, you know, has finished the film. Hmm. So I think with George Miller, the ability to communicate that is sometimes a tricky thing. It's hard for him to tell you exactly what he's got in his head. He has a lot of really wonderful regular collaborators who speak George and get that. Um, But for a lot of people, including a lot of the people on Fury Road, like Charlize, like Tom Hardy, they didn't really know what they were getting into until the very end. Yeah. And then, of course, just the actual production of the film, uh, you know, shooting in an actual Namibian desert, Uh, I mean, you couldn't get more extreme conditions than that sort of remoteness uh, since the bulk of of the shooting was there. And when you were talking with with actors, but also with people on the crew, what was the sort of immediate reactions you were getting? I just kind of imagine that, you know, each time you might talk to someone, they would just kind of get a faraway look on their face for a second because it must have been such an an extreme uh, experience. You're not wrong. The way that I started almost every interview was with a very vague question that was more about scene setting which is like Mm -hmm. let me take you back to this time in your life when you were working on this movie and it was everything and you were in the desert what do you remember (laughs) about how you felt back then Mm -hmm. you know place people in the realm of the feeling because this was such an extreme experience in almost every way that the feelings are still very strong and then you know once you get people to sort of access that emotional feeling based side they can start rationalizing that experience with the hopeful benefit of, you know, years of perspective. This is something that a lot of people have been thinking about for forever because they've never had a shooting experience like it. I mean, every single person involved will tell you, even people who've worked on other Mad Max movies will tell you that they've never had an experience like Fury Road. And it's fascinating. Some people wish they could go back there. For some people, that was the most creatively fulfilling time of their lives and Mm. for other people they can't even watch the movie because uh or at least not since they first saw it because it is too fraught you know Mm. Uh, so Mm -hmm. yeah it's a wild thing and 
that's what was bracing and exciting about doing those interviews is not just, you know, finding out literally everything I wanted to know about a film that I think is a masterpiece, but finding out on the fly how people felt about their time on it. You know, mm. you just ask that question and you see what happens. <laughs> yeah. What are a couple of things you found out that, you know, people maybe haven't heard about this movie? I will say that I don't think people realize just how long this film was cooking in George Miller's head and how long it took to get made. You know, there was an entire production of this that was supposed to be shot in 2003 starring Mel Gibson that truly Mm -hmm. fell apart as they were about to start shooting it. But it had been crewed up. It was ready. And for a really long time, George Miller carried this around in his head. And when I think you read the circumstances of that falling apart, you would think, well, how would anyone ever have the like chutzpah or the stamina even to get this back off the ground 10, 12 years later? It's a pretty astonishing thing. Yeah. But even before that iteration, a lot of what sowed the seeds for Fury Road as we know it kind of happened because there were these Warner Brothers television executives that wanted to make a syndicated Mad Max show on the level of like Hercules and Xena. Right. And the way that they brought Miller into that and started pitching it to him and the collaborators that that prompted him to seek out people like the visual artist Brendan McCarthy, even uh, this writer Eric Blakeney, who was a showrunner on 21 Jump Street, who's never talked about his involvement with Fury Road before. Getting all those people together with George kind of created this creative phase of him mulling these ideas with Fury Road that led to the movie. You know, when you hear George talk about it, because he is a storyteller, He sort of presents the genesis of Fury Road as this bolt from the blue, that he was crossing the street and he had this idea of, you know, a convoy of vehicles and one of them was smuggling women, that the MacGuffin was human. And I do think that to some extent, George looks back on how Fury Road came to be and and thinks of it that way. But the actual truth of the matter is a lot more people were involved in kind of setting up the situation that even got us to where Fury Road is. Mm. And it might not have happened this way if it weren't for, you know, a whole bunch of TV execs who wanted a syndicated Mad Max show so they could make toys out of it. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is the kind of unholy truth about you know many movies that it's hard to narrow it down to like a, a single motivating force it's often messier than that but yeah brendan mccarthy was an interesting voice also just to read about in terms of the importance of storyboarding to the visuals of the movie because that immediately struck me even just watching it you know at home on a tv now that in the best way it is very often a cartoon and learning about how that was put together is, is also pretty interesting. He's, a, he's an interesting figure, too, because you have George in there saying he's like his older rock and roll brother, you know, pushing him further and that sort of thing. Yeah, McCarthy was a big influence on him to make it sort of more extreme. McCarthy is such a Mad Max fan, and he came at it from that perspective. And he really wanted, if they were going to return to this franchise... For it to be kind of the fan film that he'd had in his head for a long time, something that wouldn't disappoint mm-hmm. him. Uh, you know, I'll say this about McCarthy because it kind of ties into something you were saying earlier, which is people sometimes, especially in success, can say, here's how it all came together. The virtue of an oral history format like this book has mm-hmm. is that there were a lot of people who collaborated on this, whose collaborations were key, that maybe didn't get the credit that 
they warranted. McCarthy is one of the only people in this book who didn't want to talk for the book. I do think that he has some unresolved feelings about Mm. who got credit and who didn't that he wants to talk about at a later date, you know, especially when it came to the early creative genesis of Fury Road. There were a lot of people who were involved whose sometimes seemingly small suggestions would down the line become some of the most important creative decisions that make that movie what it is. That's part of what's also interesting is just the sheer variety of people you're talking to. And you often have what I began to think of as like the Marshall McLuhan effect where you'd someone would be talking about something and, and then you'd be like, well, I have this acrobat right here to talk about this. <laughs> No, that was that was the fun. And, you know, it's it's a tricky thing during a pandemic to track all those sorts of people down. I mean, mm. you know, obviously, if you want to get a hold of uh, Charlize or Nicholas Holt or somebody, you go through their publicists. But how do you find, you know, random crew members? How do you find PAs? And that's fun. You know, the great thing about Fury Road is it was such a enveloping experience out there in the desert that even if you had what might seem to others to be a fairly inconsequential job on it, you have incredible stories from that experience, you know? Yeah. So I was really eager to talk to, yeah, you know, a random a real estate agent who used to be an acrobat who helped consult on <laughs> an action sequence. I was excited to talk to PAs or assistant directors, you know, people who have fantastic stories but never have given interviews about this movie, you know, who yeah. I think have been dying to tell some of these stories for ages. Yeah, you would get interesting kind of observations and that I think in ways get to aspects of the movie that aren't talked about as much. Like someone, I'm, I'm forgetting now, talks about it, the fight between Furiosa and Mad Max, that there's like an S&M aspect to it with the chains and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And that crystallized something that I was definitely feeling in the movie, which is those kind of energies that course through it that are beyond the conventional almost antiseptic like action movies. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's ironic that a lot of the genesis of the Fury Road project was, you know, executives wanting to sell toys because the things that animate it, the themes and ideas that animate Fury Road are so adult. They are things like sex and power and, you know, hoarding of resources and the environment, really sophisticated ideas that maybe not everybody is going to pick up on the first time that they watch Fury Road or even the second. But I think what they will pick up on is that there is something really resonant to the images and the ideas that we're seeing. And it's a rewarding thing as an author to be able to dig into those images and ideas and find out that the animating forces that led people like Miller to include them to talk about the wives and their sex slavery or to talk about the Citadel hoarding water or to talk about the Vuvulini, the older women who help Max and Furiosa in the third act of the film. There are such strong ideas that underline that. And I think this is a good time to shout out Nico Lathuris, who is a uh, accredited mm-hmm. co-writer on the film, but came into the movie at an interesting point. You know, He came into it after the incarnation with Mel Gibson had fallen apart. And the story and the script at that time were, you know, I mean, well, the, the, the series of storyboards, I should say, were really, you know, animated by wouldn't this be cool? Wouldn't this look great? Isn't this a great idea for an action sequence? And Nico Lathuris, mm-hmm. who's a actor, a playwright, kind of a creative muse and collaborator, he came on board to basically look at every single element of the film and deepen it to say, well, maybe we were drawn to this idea because of X, Y, and Z and 
how, you know, these stories of, of the women in the film or Max's initial passivity and captivity and what activates him finally to ally with Furiosa. He was deepening all of those themes. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, you sense that this is a film where absolutely every element of it was well considered by the people who made it. Some of that is them operating on, you know, really well honed creative instincts, but a whole lot of it is just thoughtfulness you know every single frame of this movie is brimming with that kind of thoughtfulness there was even a podcast where they dissected every minute of fury road and i don't doubt that that's an incredibly creative text to draw from because every minute of this film is giving you so much to chew on if you really want to drill down into it i was actually noticing uh, the minutes just because I was seeing that it's so disciplined in its editing as well. Uh, I mean, you can almost set your clock by, you know, at a 30 minute mark, you'll have a different chapter just when they've kind of brought something to a climax and they can move on to another thing. And it doesn't feel like mechanical. I just observed that because, you know, again, reading the book, you think, how do you possibly contain and convey the energy of all this, and, and they managed to do that. And I guess part of that is this interesting partnership that uh, George Miller has where his life partner also happens to be uh, the editor on the film. So that must have been interesting to get insights onto her work as well. Oh, very much so. Yes, Margaret Sixel, who won the Oscar for editing Fury Road, mm -hmm. who likes to say now that Warner Brothers would have loved to have fired them, uh, and then they went on to win the <laughs> Oscar for it. She's, you know, a really fascinating person. She has edited some of George's other movies, but this is the first action film that she ever edited. And that's, you know, a large part of what George credits for this being a good and coherent movie. Things pass by so fast in this film. So it was really important for everybody involved for it to be coherent, for you to always know where the characters are relative to one another in an action sequence and what the stakes are, you know? And there's mm -hmm. a lot of really clever, subtle ways of reinforcing that. One of them is that as quickly as this film is edited, almost all of the action is in the center of the frame at all times, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a weirdly symmetrical frame in that way. So that if we are bouncing somewhere else, your eye is not racing to find the most important part of that frame. It just knows. There are, you know, yeah. really sort of cerebral, instinctual, primal ways that this film is conceived on a shot-by-shot -shot basis and edited. And yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason that I think every single time I watch it, it feels fresh is because that editing is, is mm -hmm. so crisp and so clear and also very crucially for a film that is ostensibly one long chase knows exactly when to get quiet. No, that's that's very, very true. And part of what's interesting is that you have these two performances at the, at the lead that are also working so intriguingly in an action movie with quiet a lot. Uh, I mean, Charlize Theron, there's really no way a, a, most of these sequences would work without the, the kind of focus and just kind of her awareness even of where she's looking and how that directs your own eye and the action of, of each scene. But what's interesting is also reading how the actors could get frustrated with the shooting of very short bits uh, to assemble things. And what was your sense of why uh, George Miller was shooting that? Because surely he also, he must've been aware that that can be a drain on your, on your actors. I mean, it's a strange combination of like an eternity of time in the desert, where you're shooting these tiny slivers of shots sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I would think most of your uh, listeners understand that when you're shooting a scene, you know, usually you'll do most of the scene and you'll maybe do a wide mm -hmm. shot and then get a medium and close ups. 
And, you know, this was an unusual case because they really would not shoot full scenes. Miller had, you know, initially storyboarded this film with a lot of incredible artists like Brendan McCarthy and Mark Sexton and Peter Pound and had been sitting on it for years with the shot by shot flickering in his head. Hmm. So when he got on the set in that desert, he was not shooting, you know, the entirety of a sequence where they're talking to each other in the car. He knows exactly when the camera is supposed to be on Furiosa, exactly when it's supposed to be on Max exactly when it's just going to be a close-up of Furiosa's hand on the steering wheel. And he would just shoot those very isolated, which was an incredibly frustrating experience for the actors who wanted to feel that they were doing kind of a whole thing. And instead, they had to be extremely attuned to the moment, as small as those moments were. And to me, that's one of the things that makes especially Charlize's performance so incredible because you do feel so much that is animating her and mm. there is an arc to it and there is such steel to her as a character but as a leading actress and to think that she did all that you know in these incredibly brief shots that all hang together is a crazy thing but you know i mean a yeah. lot of the actors thought that it wasn't hanging together that's what they were worried about they're like, I'm screwing this up because how am I going to give a performance that doesn't just extend through scenes, but extends through these second long shots uh, that feels consistent and coherent? And somehow they managed. And, you know, again, a lot of that is what was underpinning the production that we didn't see. You know, I spoke to the screenwriter Kelly Marcel, who's never talked about being an onset writer for Fury Road before. And she was brought on in part because of Tom Hardy's frustrations with not having a whole lot to say. And then eventually Charlize she was working with, they wrote a really long sort of backstory-driven monologue for her. And of course, you'll see that almost none of that is in the movie. Occasional lines that Kelly Marcel and, and, and Tom Hardy suggested are in there, things like, that's bait. But, you know, a really long Furiosa monologue just would feel out of place. However... The things that they wrote and worked on and thought about are what underpin Charlize's performance, you know? Mm. Ultimately, mm. the most iconic moment of her character arc, which is, you know, stumbling out in the desert and falling to her knees and crying out, whatever they were working on in that monologue is in that moment. And you sense it. You sense backstory. Mm -hmm. You sense all these different agendas within her. And I think it's a really intriguing thing when those things don't have to all be explicitly said, but you sense it, you know, that's, that's giving the audience a lot of credit. And I should note also, it helped that in, in between the Mel Gibson version falling apart and the Charlize and Tom version coming together, that Miller and Nicola Thuris worked on a Furiosa screenplay. So they teased out mm. that backstory to, you know, a very extensive degree. They're now making that movie. But when Charlize came on board, she was able to read that screenplay and know even more about her character. So I think it just helps, you know. I don't know that every yeah. director would be able to, at the drop of a hat, give you an entire character history if you asked for it. But Miller does. Miller can do that for even the smallest roles in something like Fury Road. And that's why all of those people feel like they have lives and ideas that extend beyond the frame that we see. Yeah. 
I, I really especially like your interview excerpts with with Charlize Theron. I, I mean, it, I mean, you were mentioning that you had established a rapport, and I think that really shows she's very open. And what sort of insights did you get into what was going on on set when you actually were able to talk to her? Well, it's an interesting thing because, like you said, when you're talking to a lot of these crew members who've never given interviews, they are ostensibly not media trained. So they will be more candid with you, right? Especially if they're mm. Australian. <laughs> Australians are not going to mince words. <laughs> Australians are going to tell you like the shit that really went down. So you would think that the people with more on the line who are the stars, the names of this film, would be a lot more circumspect. And Maybe it's because of the Fury Road of it all, or maybe it's because of these specific people, but they really weren't. You talk to Zoe Kravitz, she'll tell you the real shit. You talk to Charlize, she'll tell you the real shit. I I even left in a moment where she's talking about, you know, the tensions on set, and you can sense her grappling with it, I think, even on the page, where she's like, "Uh, you know, I don't want to rehash this, but... And then by the end of what she's saying she's like oh fuck it let me just talk about it you know (laughs) she because she knows Charlize is not stupid Charlize knows that when this book comes out people will rehash the Tom and Charlize feud and they'll be able to do that with a lot more information than they've ever had and really specific incidents that went down with the two of them and also Charlize now with the benefit of perspective talks about how she wishes that set was set up in a way that made her feel Mm -hmm. you know safer as the female lead of that movie And, you know, does she want those headlines? Does she want another round of that? Is that why she's talking about this? No. The the credit to Charlize is, you know, having interviewed her uh, several times, not just for this book, but in the past, Charlize does not want bullshit questions in an interview. She does not want you know, sort of blithe, mm-hmm. tell me what it was like to work with so-and-so, or, oh, you were so good. <laughs> Did you have fun making this movie? Charlize wants <laughs> stuff that you can go deep with her. So if you're asking her things that are challenging, she will rise to that challenge. She will not back away from a difficult question. And I really do appreciate that. I think over the years, you know, because of this being such an extreme experience, but also this providing her with one of her most iconic film performances, she's had many reasons to look back at her Fury Road experience in the desert, you know? And every Mm. year that passes gives her additional perspective on it. So I just think we caught her at the right time and she was the right person. She was not somebody who was going to hold back. And she also doesn't mind saying where she felt she had her own shortfalls, which I appreciate, you know? I think... You know, when you have an experience like Fury Road that's so unique, you do look back and you're like, why was it that way? Not only just why did it turn out so well, but why was the shooting of it so difficult? And do I have perspective on it now that I'm not there, you know, sort of fending for my life every day? And she obviously Mm -hmm. has done a lot of thinking about it. And, And so to his credit has Tom Hardy, who also sort of apologized for his role and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and said that, he thinks that now as a sort of more sophisticated, older, he said uglier actor, <laughs> he would have, he would be a better scene partner for her. Yeah. <laughs> now that I am older and uglier. <laughs> right. Debatable um, on, on one front. Right 
I, I just want to say a little bit about Tom Hardy. Uh, I thought his performance, actually, I appreciated more this time around as well. It, it felt like it was sort of purposefully recessive. I think he gets compared to like a stray dog at one point who's not warmed up to its new master. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I feel like he is channeling an element of Mel Gibson, but maybe not the one that we would think of when we watch yeah. the old Mad mm-hmm. Max movies because Mel does hold so much in reserve in those films. And Tom doesn't necessarily, as a performer, Tom has a certain sort of unpredictable live wire wackiness, especially (laughs) on set. And I think that really stymied a lot of people that he would be doing wildly different things in every take. And some of them would be almost sort of Looney Tunes-ish in the sort of, you know, exaggeration of the thing. But as he likes to say... You have to do those things to arrive at the thing that works. You know, mm-hmm. you have to sometimes throw out things that aren't the thing that works. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know that that created a lot of doubt amongst co-stars, even amongst, you know, key creative people. Uh, Margaret Sixel, the editor of the film, when I spoke to her, she had just rewatched the movie in advance of our interview. And she said now she kind of appreciates Tom's performance. Mm. She didn't then because it was so chaotic and all over the place that it was a challenge to cut it in a way that felt consistent. But now she sees that the sort of like wacky comedy of the thing and the extremes, you know, they're very much of a piece with what Fury Road is. Sometimes it is just Tom Hardy's eyes widening in a way that's kind of funny, but the film is so (laughs) shot through with that gonzo sense of humor that I don't know. I think it works, you know, uh, but yeah. but also at the same time, yeah, it's a tricky thing because people are, especially super fans of this franchise, going to compare him to Mel Gibson and that specific vibe. Also, he is sharing the screen with a female co-star who's every bit his equal. And mm-hmm. so the way that character is contextualized is very different than in other mm-hmm. Mad Max movies. And the way Tom comes at that performance is unusual, but... To me, it absolutely works. Like, you know, the subtlest things make me crack up or make me invest a little bit more. His his willingness to sometimes hold back, whether it's it's Tom or Margaret and George knowing exactly how to cut that performance together, makes the moments where he goes more extreme more resonant, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it's a very well-judged performance by Hardy and by the people who cut it. Yeah. I also gained a a sort of deeper appreciation of the Vovolini at the end. Speaking to those uh, actors, it just, you know, one of them says, yeah, usually I would be cast as someone with Alzheimer's or something like this. Um, So these were roles that they clearly could could tear into. So they must have been pretty, pretty excited to to share the enthusiasm about that. Oh, they loved it, you know, and a lot of them were asking if they could do their own stunts, which they would never Mm. get to do because they'd never even be in a position to be doing stunts. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's such a kick about Fury Road. I remember when that third act chase began, when I was watching it for the first time, it was astonishing to me that we were following, you know, a war rig that had two main male characters and then was filled with such a wide variety of women. It's crazy. And it wasn't doing that in any sort of you know, Lady Avengers all walking in the same frame in Avengers Endgame (laughs) kind of way. It was just Mm -hmm. 
a very natural building arc and conclusion for what that story is about. And it's what makes the third act feel so tense and exciting above and beyond just the simple action mechanics of the thing is because you care about these women when, you know, the keeper of the seeds, this old lady who's got this small purse of seeds, when she takes a chainsaw to the throat, how do you not just (laughs) scream and jump in your seat and feel devastated by that moment? Who would dare? Who would dare to include her even on the journey, you know? It's just so filled with stakes because mm-hmm. it's, again, it's animated by real human feelings. And, and you know, much like ev- absolutely everything else about the movie, there's so much that underpins those characters. You know, they would do long sessions with each other in the desert. They would help create their characters. They would collaborate on the costumes. They would do workshops, you know, same with the actresses who played the wives who were doing that with, you know, the the playwright and activist Eve Ensler. Same with the stuntmen who d- played the war boys who were driven into sort of near hysteria during these acting workshops to, you know, better get at that war boy zealotry. And, mm-hmm. you know, they lived these things to the extent that they were able. And even in, in ways that I don't think were intended. And that's, you know, what's so rewarding for me as an author to be able to illustrate is that, the actual lives of the people working on this movie and the lives of the characters they were playing absolutely bled together, you know? It's it's a very wild thing that the themes of making the movie are so conversant with the themes of the movie. And then, of course, there are the other kind of sweet convergences, uh, you know, people who got together as a result of the movie. I guess one is uh, Riley Keough, just for, at this point, just meeting a, a younger uh, stuntman on the movie. And then later on, <laughs> I just love It's so sweet. It's like a mini like romance within the oral history where he's like, uh, you want to listen to some of my music? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she married the war boy who pulls Zoe Kravitz out of the war rig. It's wild. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you're there in such an extreme situation, it's it's pretty natural, I would think, for you to you know, kind of emergency bond with a whole lot of other people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, set romances happen no matter where you are, no matter what production. But but a lot of, yeah, a lot of the ones that happened on Fury Road were pretty distinctive. There were stunt doubles for Tom and Charlize, who fell for each other, got married, had a kid, <laughs> which is kind of a wild contrast to how Tom and Charlize felt about one another. Um, yeah, they were, they were marriages, babies, flings, all sorts of things that happened. I, I also just want to recognize that you really, you know, weave in the behind the scenes in another sense here, just the, you know, studio machinations that are going on. And, you know, you're mentioning how these different forces behind the scenes in front of the camera can kind of merge. And I mean, there's a case where literally the movie is not going to be the movie it's going to be uh, if it weren't for a way a succession happens at Warner. Uh, so was that something you you always wanted to make sure was, was a part of the, the story you're telling? Yeah, because it's wild. I mean, it's so apparent when you're watching this movie that it was hard to make and that there will be interesting stories about the shoot. But, you know, if you're somebody who knows anything about film, I think you'll be just as intrigued by, well, but how did they preserve this really specific vision at a time when almost every movie is sanded down mm-hmm. in some way? And so, again, it's a gift to me as an author, perhaps not a gift to the people who made the film, that truly until the very end of this process, the future of this film was so much in doubt. I mean, it all culminates 
in this test screening of two different cuts. One is Miller's and one is the studios, which they worked on without his permission. And they're playing opposite one another in a movie theater in Alhambra. And they decide the future of so many things, you know, if that Mm -hmm. studio version were the winner in that, on that night, then would we even have a Furiosa prequel coming out in two years? Would we have, you know, would the movie have been nominated for so many things? Would we give a shit? Would I have written a book? You know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's just crazy. And to see what animated the studio, what they were scared of, some of those were just a fear of anything that's unusual or different, but some of those were legitimate concerns. Again, I think there were people who just could not understand George, who, you know, whether it was George's inability to effectively communicate his vision to them, or it was just so unusual that they couldn't grok it in any kind of mainstream way. But, you know, early, early cuts of that film, the studio was terrified and you know i spoke to people who were like yeah it was a mess then but you know you look how intricate that movie is there's so much that goes into making that movie that movie in post-production absolutely every single frame is so well considered so it's gonna take time to get there and Mm -hmm. you know a lot of really big blockbuster filmmaking does not have the luxury of time not the inadvertent luxury of having it you know shut down for years so all these things can be considered and not the luxury of it just not being fucking ready. So they have to keep working on it. And then suddenly the studio president who was such a thorn in their side gets deposed. And the next guy takes a look at the movie and is like, what? This is incomplete. They need additional shooting. You know, it's, it is a wild thing when you look at the sum total of all of the sort of act of God moments that happened behind the scenes <laughs> yeah. on this movie to realize that it became you know, such a, a incredible, indelible film. And it's it's one of the things that, that made me eager to write this book because I think there are a lot of really fantastic making of books about bad movies, uh, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, Monster by Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn or whether it's, you know, Julie Salomon's book on the making of The Bonfire of the Vanities. You know, they're really tasty, juicy books about almost everything that went wrong in the course of making a movie that itself kind of went wrong and the fascinating thing about fury road is it tells you exactly how hard it is to make a hollywood movie and yet the final result is a masterpiece that is such a (laughs) fascinating tension to me and that is Mm -hmm. what made constantly digging into the idea of this film such a pleasure yeah I guess this gets said about a lot of great movies that, oh, they could never make one like this, this again. Uh, how, how much do you feel like that? that is true for, for Mad Max Fury Road? I mean, I think it's very true. Ironically, mm-hmm. the only thing that's going to be made like this anytime soon is them making a Furiosa prequel. And <laughs> right. I would hope that they would have something of a wind at their back because now they've proven, okay, here's the kind of thing you're going to get from us. So now they might have the studio support that they never quite had with Fury Road. But at the same time, I mean, you know, like something like Spider-Man No Way Home, listen, it's an effective piece of entertainment, but is it, is it gorgeous to look at? Is every Mm -hmm. scene, is every shot brimming with ideas or is it just put the camera there? You know, it's so rare that you have incredible filmmakers who are pushing the envelope in the way that these films are made you know these really big populist ostensibly populist entertainments 
you know, even something like watching an episode of the Book of Boba Fett the other day, you mm-hmm. know, with the Mandalorian and Luke Skywalker and uh, Grogu, Baby Yoda, all of that, you know, it is on one hand a good looking piece of television, but on the other hand, I kind of feel like it's it's a really trumped up version of those old CD-ROM adventures where people would stand in front of a green screen <laughs> and there'd be a computer generated uh-huh. background before them. Like as 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 beautifully generated as those um, backgrounds are, those faux sets are. There's something about the lighting and the lack of interaction with the set that makes you that feels flat. That makes that yeah. image feel not real and. The crazy thing about Fury Road and their willingness to do those things for real is that these really outlandish fantasy worlds feel so much more visceral as a result. I mean, I remember the first time I watched it, there's a, you know, random war boy who falls off the war rig, you know, just a stuntman in the middle of an action sequence, not even a really consequential one. And as he like, you know, fell off and hit the sand, I jumped in my seat. It felt so much more visceral than you know, any any random death in any other action movie. It just yeah. felt real. You know that something fucking fell off that war rig and hit an actual ground, you know? the yeah. So those things matter to me. Seeing a fucking blue sky matters to me because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everything is so milky white and digital and raw and boring now. Yeah. You know, I love that it's so super saturated. I, I oh, love it's beautiful. The, the visual ideas of this film and the aesthetic so much. The fact that it even has an aesthetic, unfortunately, is a triumph compared to most modern tentpole filmmaking. I love that. Uh, that's the book cover as well for for Blood, Sweat, and Crow. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I really wanted that that super saturated blue and orange feel because you know I, it's an ironic thing because shooting out there in the desert, a lot of people thought it would be very desaturated near to black and white, and there is of course mm. a black and white version of Fury Road that you can watch if you want. But I I honestly do prefer the regular super saturated colorful version. It's not just the opposite of what you would think from a post-apocalyptic movie, but it's so immediately distinctive. And that mm. kind of vivid nature of the colors feels so in keeping with how vivid and gonzo every other element of the movie is. You know, why mm. hold back on color? The lack of color does not automatically confer grit and goodness. And a lot of movies would uh, do well to remember that, I think. No, and I mean, you know, also, I, I guess we haven't talked about just the, the screenwriting, the dialogue, you know, there were, I was just kind of savoring some of the lines, uh, you know, that it's been 7,000 days plus the ones I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, it's basically a song lyric, you know? <laughs> well, it's so spare. And, you know, yeah. because the characters, most of them at least, talk so little, mm-hmm. the more you watch this movie, the more you invest in every small thing they do say, because it's so suggestive of a backstory, of a point of view, you know? The first time you watch the movie, you might have just sort of vague ideas of who all of the wives are or some sense of maybe what Furiosa has gone through. But the more and more you watch it, the more it rewards that close attention because you, you've really started mm-hmm. to tease out, okay, so what are the differences between these characters? What must they have gone through together or separately prior to this moment? It's, it's fun. It's exciting. And it trusts yeah. the audience to, to do that work. 
Well, similar to the book, you know, I mean, there are hundreds more questions uh, I could ask. Um, I guess one question is, is there anything that you wanted to find out about, but you you still don't know about the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's one specific thing that I wanted to find an image of so badly. What's that? Which is, uh, it's a cut sequence that sounds incredibly fascinating. It is a dream sequence that leads into the third act of the movie where Max dreams that he's giving birth to himself (laughs) and they actually built a pregnant body for tom hardy and came up (laughs) with an incredibly elaborate shot where he would be pregnant giving birth to you know baby tom hardy it's seems like a (laughs) truly insane thing tom hardy lactating nipples a pregnant (laughs) belly and I was dying for someone to find me a picture of this cut sequence. And at one point I thought I had a lead, but alas, uh-huh. no. So yeah, I would, I would love to see that, you know. Uh, but it, is, it was a great thing working on the book because I got to see a lot of videos and images that were astonishing mm. to me. You know, videos of the war boys in their war boy workshops that were so striking. Mm. Saw a storyboard image of Eminem as Mad Max, which was mold at one point. Uh, Mad Max with blonde <laughs> hair. Um, so yeah, you know, I the the only real shortfall for me is being able to get my hands on some of those things and be able to show mm. everybody else. Now you have the image in my head of Tom Hardy giving birth to Tom Hardy. I mean, when you hear that image, it's pretty incredible. It's probably for the best that it didn't end up making the movie because that kind of might have uh, unbalanced the entire thing. How do you move on from that? That's right. It's probably in a safe somewhere. It'll it'll time capsule for the next 40 years or something. Yeah. So, well, just just to wrap up, um, I just want to ask a couple of questions um, just because I've been reading, you know, your work for for a long time. So also going back to New York Magazine. Part of what's interesting about the book, you write something that's for the newspaper and it's out there and you get immediate reactions. Here you have a whole book where you get to really dig into things in a different form. How would you compare writing for New York Magazine versus New York Times? I would say the biggest difference between writing for Vulture and New York Magazine, where I used to work, and writing for the New York Times, a job that I love, is that you can't print curse words. (laughs) (laughs) That is the number one difference. And I got so, um, you know, it's a very exciting thing uh, when I used to work at Vulture, when you would have, you know, Carrie Mulligan say, fuck this, fuck that, or, you know, somebody talk explicitly about sex or something, you're thinking, okay, I just got a really juicy quote or story. Uh, Unfortunately, at the times, there are standards restrictions. So you wouldn't be able to print Carrie Mulligan saying, fuck that, unless you came up with a really coy way of saying that she'd said it that doesn't say it. And I'm not going to lower myself to fucking (laughs) writing about it like that um so that's the only bummer um you know hopefully i have degraded new york times standards to the point where like (laughs) i can slip some things in that are unexpected um but yeah i remember early on when i got to the times uh, i was writing an article about the director steve mcqueen and how the first shot Mm. of all of his movies is so striking Mm. and he said you have to grab the audience by the balls And that is a line I fought to get into that article because the standards desk thought it was too vulgar. So it's an interesting thing. Um, But aside from that, uh, working for the Times is a total dream, you know? It's the reason that I wrote this book. 
if it weren't for, you know, the access that you get at the times and how wonderful everybody there is and how trusting they are of me, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have been able to pull 20 some people together for the initial oral history in such Mm -hmm. a short time. I mean, usually to put together any sort of oral history, it takes forever to sync up schedules and to get everybody on the same page and just plain do the work. So it's still kind of crazy to me that I put the initial times oral history together so fast and that even though it's now been several months since, you know, the book was locked in, that I did all those interviews in such a short span of time while also retaining my really demanding day job at the times. That is not Mm. something I think I could have done if there were not, you know, a pandemic raging, it is the unintended upside, which is that, you know, in those pre-vaccination days, I just was sitting around with, you know, no real life to invest in. So why not work on the book? Yeah. So it's, it's coming out, uh, even though it feels like a, uh, a slow process, uh, a long, elongated process for the book to come out, it's coming out a lot faster than it would if there were no pandemic. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, now we can all, we can all enjoy the, the fruits, the fruits of your quarantine labor. Um, <laughs> so it's good to appreciate that. And for my last question is the traditional question for, for the podcast, uh, which is uh, what was the last movie you saw? So uh, much like you, I have been watching uh, recent Sundance movies virtually. Oh, yeah. And the very last one that I saw was Navalny, this really terrific documentary about the opposition leader in Russia, a very charismatic guy who is standing up to Putin and, you know, has been poisoned because of it has been exiled because of it, is now thrown in prison because of it, and yet Mm. keeps fighting. It's a terrific doc because of the access and because, you know, all these things are kind of happening in real time as you're watching it. There's a really fascinating bit that everyone will be talking about where they kind of piece together who poisoned Navalny and he calls Mm. (laughs) the people who... uh, who they are fairly sure just cold calls them just practically prank calls them uh initially it's like so uh why'd you poison me and then comes up with cleverer ways to do it that you know end up convincing the perpetrators to sort of spill their guts that's all fascinating what i'll also say is you know there's an interesting tension there too because navalny and his ability to sort of circumvent the sort of Russian government-controlled media very much operates on YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. Mm. Um, That, to me, was a very sort of fascinating thing running through this movie, is that Navalny is putting together these, like, lip syncs on TikTok that feel so (laughs) sort of, you know, sort of silly and beneath a politician, and he gets razzed by Russians for doing so. And yet they're exactly the reason that he's clicking with a younger generation. You know, he's a very handsome, charismatic, JFK-ish guy, very witty, smart, educated. He is essentially a YouTuber. (laughs) That's the thing. I was like, this is Putin versus a YouTuber. This is Putin versus like a TikToker, you know? And so a lot of people don't take him seriously because of it, but it it really illustrates the divide between an older Russia and a younger one, but then also a potentially coming divide in politics generally, which is an ability Mm. to marshal, you know, social media for good or for ill in a way that demonstrates your point. You know, there are some people who know how to do it, but we've had 
a gerontocracy in charge of American politics for so long now, there's going to be a real awakening when that generation passes and the social media inmates run the asylum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I I also saw saw that and it really struck me, you know, they're also like counting the number of followers. They're like, oh, we got this many. Oh, yeah. So much of the movie is them being like, oh, wow, we have this many views in this many minutes. And it's almost (laughs) obscene to watch somebody who's supposed to be above that really for it mattering to them. But it's right. real. It feels incredibly real. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course they would just be sitting around measuring their numbers. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because obviously we saw, you know, social media and politics interact, intersect during the Trump administration. But yeah, Navalny, in, in addition to just being like an incredibly effective documentary thriller, really got me thinking about social media's role in politics from now mm. on. Because it's yeah. only going to get crazier, and it's already been so fucking crazy. Yeah. Well, we can, we can end with that uh, vision of dystopia coming, <laughs> coming <laughs> to wrap up everything. Good movie, here. though. <laughs> Good movie, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, thank you, thank you so much, Kyle, for talking about the book, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the last thing I saw with your host Nicholas Rapold please consider signing up at repold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.